All right. Welcome, everyone. I'm Samira Daswani, the host of the podcast called The Patient from Hell. It is built and sponsored by Manta Cares, a community of caregivers and survivors of cancer. We are a global community, and we build tools and resources that help individuals go through the cancer experience. Today, it is my utmost pleasure to have my professor, Professor Carlson, from um, the East Coast of the US. She's a specialist in aquatic ecology. I met Professor Carlson back when I was convinced I wanted to be an ichthyologist. An ichthyologist is a scientist that studies sharks. That, of course, didn't happen. But it can, potentially, in the future. But Professor Carlson um, taught me everything I know about biology. And she has stayed a mentor and a friend for many, many years after I left. And back then, and this is now, what, maybe 12 years ago, 14 years ago, I knew about her being a cancer patient. So now, many years later, it is my utmost honor and privilege to have her on this podcast and to tell her story. Welcome, Professor Carlson. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Samira. It's such a treat to be here and to see you. Oh, likewise. You look so beautiful. I love it. Oh, I wish I looked like you. <laughs> oh. uh, I feel the same way, so mutual admiration. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Carlson, tell us how you ended up being an aquatic ecologist. Well, it's it, it, it was it was a long journey, but um, I, I think I, I grew up loving animals, uh, and I spent a huge amount of time outdoors. You know, I lived on a farm, and so that that explains part of that. And one of the first things I began doing as a, as a young girl was to have an insect collection, which consisted almost entirely of butterflies. Um, and I still love butterflies today. You know, I have planted gardens in our, in our backyard to attract butterflies. I no longer collect them. <laughs> and um, that led me to major in biology as an undergraduate in college. And there was a defining moment for me in college that really shaped the rest of my career. I, I took a summer course uh, in Northern Minnesota and that course was titled Aquatic Invertebrates. So an invertebrate is an animal without a backbone. So these are animals, animals, excuse me, that uh, live in the water. Uh, many of them are quite small, some not. Uh, so aquatic insects, crustaceans, and so forth. And I felt like I had suddenly discovered this incredible world underwater that most people didn't know about. And I was mesmerized. I was mesmerized by the body shapes, the behavior, uh, their life cycles, everything about them. And I decided right then and there that I wanted to go on to graduate school for a master's degree uh, just to learn more about these aquatic animals, which I did. And to make a long story short, that led to my going on for a PhD because I was still intrigued by these organisms, but I didn't really know where that PhD might lead me. Uh, but it led me to teaching at a, at a private university and, and working with undergraduates and continuing to, to conduct research in uh, freshwater systems. Wow, um, that's incredible. So you've been doing this for how many years now? Well, over well over 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still not tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
my one of my favorite recollections of you is I think it was a summer and you were in a lab and we went to a local freshwater system and you taught me how to use all of this incredibly cool equipment. No, no, I think you you misremember that. You <laughs> taught you taught yourself. You know, I I basically gave you that equipment. Which and it was quite it was quite involved. There, you know, there were multiple pieces, and I told you to become an expert. And then we traveled to the opposite side of the world uh, to work in a in a freshwater system. And you were phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you were. You you, yeah, you were the star of the course in so many ways. And what I remember about you was was something different. I, I remember you teaching all the students a song that I think had originally been written in Hindi or, you know, Correct. it was an Indian song. Yeah. And somehow it got translated into, into Russian. Um, and so um, you taught the group, you know, how to sing this song. And the captain, the captain of our ship, who is this phlegmatic person who, who never talked much, um, just lit up and 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 toasted people of all nations yeah i'll never forget that oh those are good times i think you inspired me and, and i <laughs> i a uh, professor uh carson i i'm not even joking i don't think i fully appreciated how much you inspired me both as a student but also as an individual until i was going through treatment and I distinctly remember we had gone for a meal in a local restaurant near the university. And it was a nice restaurant. And I remember what you ordered. You had them customize your meal. And I remember asking you why you were doing that. And I think that was the first time you told me about your journey as a patient. Mm -hmm. And I remember that that stayed with me because as now a survivor of breast cancer, I've had to make a lot of changes to my diet. And I distinctly remember that moment from so many years ago. And I remember it when I'm at that restaurant trying to make a decision. And it's really hard to make the decisions that are right for you from a health lens when there are so many temptations otherwise. And I remember that moment and I've drawn on that so many times in the last couple of years. Oh, it's, it, it, yeah, that's that's really interesting because um, I, I I don't know of the moments that I influence my students and and I didn't I didn't know that I was I was doing that at that time, um, but yes my my diet my diet changed dramatically you know after after my cancer diagnosis um, prior to my cancer diagnosis my diet sucked I mean excuse me excuse me for that language but. It, it really did. I mean, my husband and I were working very hard and um, our goal was to prepare things as fast as we could and eat them as quickly as we could and then move on <laughs> to whatever we were working on. And so, you know, dinner was often hot dogs or macaroni and cheese. And, and lunch uh, for me was usually a peanut butter and jelly sandwich um, and, and usually a piece of fruit and that was it. So anyway, I, I met with a nutritionist about two months after my initial cancer diagnosis. I actually didn't, actually, let me back up a second. She was speaking to a group of cancer patients at a local wellness center 
designed for cancer patients. It no longer exists, sadly. But she was an expert in advising uh, patients who had cancer. And I found what she was recommending so different from the way I ate that I thought it was radical. I thought, this can't be, this can't be right. And so I made an appointment with two other nutritionists who specialized you know, in, in speaking to cancer patients, one who is at a renowned cancer institute, still working there, and, and another nutritionist, uh, again, an expert on advising cancer patients who was with my local health maintenance organization. And to my great surprise, all three of them were advocating the same, the same healthful diet. I mean, they were advocating basically a plant-based diet, you know, uh, avoiding as much as you can red meat, um, not eating any processed meats, um, again, filling your plates uh, with plants, with vegetables, you know, at least half your plate, maybe three quarters of your plate, emphasizing cruciferous vegetables, whole grains. Um, I could go on, on and on, you know, uh, also including uh, plants or, or fish that are rich in omega-3 fatty acids and so forth. So, so anyway, I decided, okay, three nutritionists have recommended this. Uh, I'll try this diet for a year and then I'll assess whether or not I want to stay on it. Well, it became very clear to me within two months that I wanted to stay on this diet because I noticed two things. First of all, I had sustained energy throughout the day. Um, and I was, I was undergoing chemotherapy at that time. And that really surprised me because usually, you know, prior to adopting this diet, um, my energy levels would plummet around three in the afternoon. And I would go upstairs and my office was in the basement. I'd go upstairs to a vending machine and, and I would usually buy a couple candy bars and, and eat them. And I could do that, you know, without putting on weight because I was a runner. And so I loved, I loved sweets because I could eat as many sweets as I wanted uh, without putting on weight. So anyway, after adopting this, this healthy diet, you know, I never needed to go upstairs uh, to, to get a candy bar. I mean, I, I didn't feel hungry. And, uh, you know, midday, I didn't need, I didn't need a pick-me-up for my energy. And the other thing I noticed is that I no longer had headaches. I mean, I would get headaches about Oh, twice a month, sometimes three times a month, where I would need to take an aspirin or an ibuprofen, and those vanished. And I've I've never had one, you know, in 21 and a half years, except for maybe one or two sinus headaches, you know, where it was clearly there, you know, it was a sinus problem. So I've stayed on this diet for 21 and a half years. Yeah. Can you tell us about diagnosis? So that happened 21 and a half years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, it did. And, and thinking back about that time was, was a bit difficult. Um, grappling with that was incredible because it, that, that diagnosis, well, maybe I should back up and explain what, what exactly it was. Um, I was diagnosed with a type of lymphoma, something called follicular lymphoma. It's also called indolent lymphoma, meaning that it's a slow growing cancer, which sounds relatively benign, you know, like a good cancer to have if you have to have one. But that's not the case because it's in it's incurable um, for almost all uh, patients who have this. And the reason it's incurable is that cancer drugs work very effectively on 
fast growing cancer cells. They don't work well on slow growing cancer cells. And so these drugs can't eradicate the cancer from your system. So um, let's see, where are we going with this? Um, so how did I deal with that diagnosis? You know, suddenly I had this incurable cancer diagnosis and my self-confidence in my future was shattered. I mean, absolutely shattered. I was at the peak of my career, 48 years old, and I felt like, well, also I read a paper um, that said that median survivorship was seven to eight years. And I figured with my luck, you know, it would be less than that. So I really felt like I had no future. Mm -hmm. And I felt I, I lost my self-confidence in my physical body. You know, up until that point, I had never been sick. I mean, seriously sick. I'd never been seriously sick. In fact, I'd been a runner. I was physically fit and, and so forth. And so this was really difficult to process uh, for me. And I think two things helped me in that first year to regain my self-confidence. Uh, one was I began lifting weights uh, with three women and they, they knew how to do this safely. You know, we were lifting free weights and, and doing uh, machine weights. And lo and behold, even though I was undergoing chemotherapy, I was developing upper body strength. I was developing wow. biceps, big biceps and triceps. Wow. And um, I started feeling like, wow, I'm, I'm a new woman, you know, um, and I'm at least my muscles are strong. Maybe my immune system, you know, mm -hmm. lymphoma is cancer of the immune system. Maybe my immune system isn't working so well, but I've my muscles are. And then some, something else happened that year, um, which was even more revelatory for me. I, I taught a course on the opposite side of the world. Um, and it was the, the first offering of this course. And I went over to the opposite side of the world two weeks after I finished that chemotherapy regimen. And my, my oncologist had planned the chemotherapy regimen so that I could do this. She knew that this meant a great deal to me. And I went over and I was the only person in our group who did not get sick. And this was, this was amazing to wow. me because my co-instructor and my husband, my husband went with me because he was worried about my health. The two of them both came down with a respiratory infection that required the use of antibiotics. I mean, they were really quite ill. And a number of the students came down with various, wow. various problems. Um, but I didn't. And so that showed me, my gosh, my immune system can still work. You know, I, I must be in remission and I can function normally. And that was just an enormous boost uh, to my self-confidence. Wow. Yeah. How did uh, you go from, so you've read this paper, seven to eight years is median survival. You're anxious or worried that you have less. And here you are 21 years later. How did you? Yeah, how did I continue? Yeah, uh -huh. grappling, grappling with the uncertainty. Well, let me let me first talk about median survivorship because some of your listeners may not know of this paper. Yeah. Now, if they if they if they know of this, it's actually an essay. If they know of this, just stop me. Um, there's a, a very powerful essay written by a famous biologist. His name is Stephen Jay Gould. And the title, the title of that essay is The Median is Not the Message. 
Huh. Okay. And we'll link to this. We'll if you're open to yeah, it. You'll, you'll, it's it's on the web. It's on the web. And it, he he was prompted to write this this essay because he had just been diagnosed with a a very rare form of GI cancer. I think it was in the colon. I don't exactly remember, but he quickly dug up a medical paper and learned that he had, excuse me, the median survivorship was eight months. And, and this essay describes how he dealt with this. I mean, he, he describes very powerfully how you need to understand what the median means. And I, I won't go into it, but he convinced himself and rightfully convinced himself that he would live longer than that. And most people do, most people do for reasons that you know, are explained in that essay. And he lived for another 20 years wow. and he, he died from a different type of cancer. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that I found that very, very helpful. But um, I think what has what has really helped me since that first year where I was grappling with complete loss of self-confidence uh, in my future and in, in my physical body, I think what's helped me since then are two things. One is distraction. You know, whenever whenever I think about uh, I, I try not to let my mind go off. Um, to, to thinking about when my current remission might might end. And so I distract myself by keeping very busy, um, but busy on, on projects that are larger than myself. For example, writing scientific papers with scientific colleagues um, from around the world. And more recently, uh, I've begun working with three climate action groups, you know, and I find this work very, very fulfilling. And, and it does distract me. But, you know, you can you can keep yourself too busy, you know, and 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 that can rob you of time with family and friends, which is also important. So I try to balance distraction with something called mindfulness. And I I suspect that, you know, many of your listeners have heard about this, but this has been very, very helpful for me. And it's the concept of living in the moment. It comes from Buddhism. And, you know, you try to live in the moment and cherish the current moment rather than letting your mind drift off to the unknown future or brooding on the past. And I hope I'm not talking too much, but I was introduced to this concept by my yoga teacher um, about two months after my first, my, my initial diagnosis. And I had told her, you know, about my health situation and she invited me uh, to an event where a famous Buddhist monk spoke. Uh, this was Thich Nhat Han, and he has written, he, wow. he recently died, um, 96 years old, um, earlier this year, and he's written multiple books, uh, some of which focus on mindfulness, and, and I, found, I found his thinkings and writings just very compelling, and I, I often come back to them. So distraction and mindfulness. <laughs> I love that combination, and I fully resonate with that. I think there have been a couple of themes thus far in our conversation that I've seen play out in my own life. The diet changes, the nutritional sort of underpinning, the impact of that, positive, um, largely impact of that on energy levels and overall health. Um, the next theme is the balance of grappling with uncertainty. 
I am fortunate in that I got early stage breast cancer, where prognostically speaking, or the odds of survival are typically really high. The downside though is I'm young. And in young women with breast cancer, outside of five years, you just don't know. And all the median data is a lot bleaker, but it's not good data either. So the, the uncertainty piece of it is something I grapple with very but, often. But, but to, to counter that a little bit, you know, you're, you're young and, and consequently don't have, you know, all of the health yes. ill effects that often come with, with aging. And yes. so that, that, that gives you an advantage. And yes. uh, Stephen Jay Gould's essay talks, talks a bit about that. Uh, but he also talks about um, what a median actually means for for survivorship. Um, it's it's a it's a right skewed distribution. I'll, I'll just leave it at leave it at that. And that means that you have a very high probability of being in that right tail. Okay, to the right of the median, which means you're going to live longer <laughs> than that median. I, I definitely. <laughs> Yeah, it took me a while to get there, and I think I'm still fairly recent from end of treatment, so I'm I still grapple with that. And I think I I'd imagine that the longer out you went, the uncertainty and grappling with uncertainty start to change and shift a little bit in yes. flavor. Because I think that I, I see that, like I see the difference between last year and this year in terms of how oh. much it matters. And oh, the tools good. that I've been using to navigate that. And I, I do think it's different. I think it's, I think for me, uncertainty is uncertainty of recurrence and then coming back versus true to survival. Because in my case, it was curative intent. So we, we did really well on the first phase of treatment. It's the next cancer that you worry about. So it's, it's also right. a different kind of trigger point, I guess. Yes. It's, um, the more and more I get into it and the more I hear stories like yourself, I realize that the themes are constant or similar, but the way they manifest tends to be very different for people. And what it ends up meaning tends to be pretty different given the kind of nuances of the specificity of the type of cancer and the diagnosis and how it un un unfolded, unfolded. No, you're you're right. You're right, and and I think that how people grapple with uncertainty, you know, it varies a great deal with a person. I mean, it's there's I'm sure I'm sure that's true. Yeah. So, uh, Professor Carlson, one thing that uh, when we were preparing for this um, podcast today, I remember you telling me that you still have to go in fairly frequently right now for treatments. Would you mind sharing what that looks like for you? How has that changed? Because you've been in the system for 20 years or so. Yes, and yes. Shifts and changes and things that haven't changed. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to tell us more about that. No, no, certainly. It, it, um, it, looking back over the, over the last 21 and a half years, uh, treatment and imaging has really changed, uh, mm -hmm. at least for um, Patients with my type of lymphoma, and and to give you give you an example, give you an example, um, when I was first diagnosed in two thousand one, uh, most follicular lymphoma patients who needed treatment immediately would be treated with IV infusions. Today, hmm. that initial excuse me that initial treatment is an oral therapy. It's a pill. Oh, wow. 
and it's completely different drugs you know that are being administered and they've been approved by the, by the FDA so that's a that's a that's powerful progress and and these patients are not losing their hair either you know so that's that's a big change now and it, it, continuing with another treatment change in the early 2000s uh, a monoclonal antibody was first used to treat lymphoma patients and it was something called rituxan. And I've, I've been treated with that twice now. And that's also been a huge game changer, a big treatment right. game changer. Now moving, moving on to imaging, I, I go in every six months um, and usually have to be, have to be imaged. Um, and for the first, I'd say 12, maybe even 15 years of my cancer lifetime, I was imaged with CAT scans. And there's a lot of radiation given oh. in, in a CAT scan. And so when I would go in, it was my pelvis, my abdomen, and my chest that were being, you know, mm -hmm. imaged. And, you know, you're accumulating over that many years a lot of radiation exposure. And so you can develop a secondary cancer such as leukemia. And that, that is something that the, the medical field is, you know, watches for. But the good news is that you know i'm now being imaged with mris you know magnetic resonance imaging and i'm really grateful for that yeah. wow and wow i uh, i'm grappling with the the shift in imaging i have read about it but i didn't realize that your imaging modality shifted about seven years ago that that seems fair no, it's yeah it's huge so so samira how how are you imaged are you imaged with cat scans no cat scans. Um, for me, the survivorship plan has me image every year. So every six month checkup, but every year of imaging. In my specific case, the guideline recommends only a mammogram. But I pushed back big time because that made no sense. Sorry. <laughs> this is why this is why I have come to embrace that I am the patient from hell. I'm embracing that right now because. I have realized that I push back quite a bit. And I think the reason I push back is I have dense breasts. So mammograms we know don't work on dense breasts. Right, so right. I, the, my current oncologist and I essentially agreed that in addition to doing standard of care, we would also add in a whole breast ultrasound. Oh, that's, oh that's super. So that's... I, I'm, I'm thrilled that we have that because that gives me more peace of mind because a mammogram right. really wouldn't... Pick up that's right so we have the whole breast ultrasound and then every alternate year i have to get a full body mri and pet scan i see i see right right yes i've, I've had i've had a couple of those um those pet scans those full body pet scans yep yep i know that <laughs> experience <laughs> I, uh, this is from a while back i was getting my first pet, pet scan done i was talking to actually another professor of mine in graduate school who was a survivor. And he looked at me and he goes, did you feel the particles go up your vein? And I just sat there and I was like, yes. But the fact that someone else understands that you can feel the particles go up your veins as they kind of flow into your system. And then that, that subtle coldness. That's right. Gets in. It was, it was my first moment of realizing that uh, 
the cancer diagnosis gave me a card, like a membership card to this exclusive club that no belongs to. Really wants to belong to it, but you do get exclusive access and you get access and you hear things and you you uh, bond over things like the coldness of the particles going up. <laughs> That's you're 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 absolutely right. I think this is the first time I've laughed about my my PET scan experience. But you know, it's humor, humor, sarcasm, grit, all of that is needed. You know, uh, and and that's what you get when when you enter the the exclusive club. Yeah, sure. Uh, the yeah. the humor gets pretty morbid. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Totally sure. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to try and summarize the many themes because we, we've uh, touched on so many themes already. So the first one is just the uniqueness of an in, indolent cancer and a slow-growing cancer. I think the second is Stephen Gold's uh, beautiful paper that seemed to have made a huge impact on your life on the meaning of being the median. Mm -hmm. The third theme seems to be around nutrition and the importance of nutrition and how you went to three nutritionists before you found that they were saying the same sort of principles and fundamentals and you adapted that and you've lived with that for 21 years and it's done you, it seems to be a lot of good. The fourth theme is around grappling with uncertainty, the combination of using distractions and mindfulness. The fifth theme is around what you've seen changed both, both on the treatment side and on the imaging side and how changes on both of those have had huge impact and benefit to you as an individual going through this for so many years. Any other themes that stuck to you so far? No, that was a brilliant summary. How'd you keep that all in your head? Oh, I uh, was listening, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't always happen. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, out, outstanding. That's really outstanding. Oh, this is why uh, this is why I love you as my professor because you always <laughs> seem to give me compliments. <laughs> yes, but yeah, you deserve them. Oh, you're very, very kind, um, Professor Carlson. It really has been an honor to have you on this podcast. It, I was. Very, very excited to have you on it because I think there are so many messages that our people around the world listening to this will take away from this. Fairly short, but very compelling uh, summary of your 21 years as a cancer patient. And I can, I know for a fact that you got me through some of the hard moments of my journey. And oh. I know that this story will resonate because we have a number of listeners sitting across the world who are grappling with metastatic cancers, indolent cancers, incurable cancers, and I know they listen, so I, I know that your story is going to very, very uh, positively impact and give individuals very tactical and very practical ways of grappling with the uncertainty, lifestyle changes, uh, etc. that comes with a cancer diagnosis. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure and it's so wonderful to see you, Samira. Likewise, that was the best part of this. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so proud of you. Um, so, so proud of you for starting Manta Cares. Um, it is very much needed. 
and and I love the Manticare's notebook that I have, and I, I I'm taking it, you know, to my cancer institute as I told you uh, to show them because I very much hope that they will they will begin offering it uh, to patients. Yeah, because I uh, I keep a health diary. I have many of them. In fact, I I started doing this at the suggestion of a uh, academic um, colleague, and it's been very helpful. But it is not organized. <laughs> your notebook is. Yeah. Thank you. We very much appreciate it. Mandacare is, is what it is because of individuals like yourself. So I truly, truly appreciate you being part of our community. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine nursing or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.